Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of August 2017. I'm Joe and with me are Ike. Starry bud. <laughs> and Michael. Pip pip. Michael, who's who's this person? Otherwise known as Rotten Corpse from Jupiter Broadcasting fame. Uh, Phelim and Jesse are not with us for various reasons we'll get into in a second. But Michael, tell us a bit about yourself. I believe you're a KDE user. I am a KDE Plasma user. I would say that um, as far that's probably like my main system, but I also do other things like Mate and stuff. But I'm the former former producer of the Linux Action Show, current producer of the Linux Unplugged for Jupiter Broadcasting. I'm also on the community team for Intergos, and I run a YouTube channel that I created for making my own uh, content media production stuff called Tux Digital. And you can just, if you want to look at it, look at it, it's tuxdigital.com. Okay, well, got your plug in early. Well done. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, Phelim is not here because he's rebooting some servers in Scotland or something and updating them to Ubuntu 16.04. And Jesse is not here because he is too ashamed to come back on the show after the fucking fiasco that was the opening segment last time. So, let's start off with a firm apology to System76 and Pop! OS. Jesse did this whole thing about how it had installed itself to his hard drive without him wanting it to and it had taken over and he was really unimpressed with it. And then Ike said, are you sure you didn't DD the ISO over SDA instead of SDB or whatever? And Jesse was adamant that he hadn't done that. Well, I told him to look in his bash history and what do you know, he did do that. So it was completely his fault and not the fault of Pop! OS. I'd like to offer up um, a meaningful speech on, on behalf of Jesse, who can't be here right now. <laughs> Low. <laughs> <laughs> you may continue. <laughs> yeah, so really Jesse's like gone to see some friends and stuff because we're recording early again, recording on the Saturday. But he would have got a real ribbing from us, but he managed to avoid it anyway. Um, I should now be talking about the fact that I got a new phone because I managed to destroy the Bluetooth antenna in my OnePlus One. I've now got a OnePlus 3T. But we'll have to wait until Phelium's back because he's got one as well, and it'd be good to compare notes on lineage and stuff on that. So I suppose we'd better just get straight on with the news then. The first one is Mozilla have found yet another way to spend some money. And one of them seems kind of logical, the voice search, basically, which is in Test Pilot at the moment. So it's not in the mainstream version of the browser, but it looks like it's going to be coming. And it's pretty good, really. You can do voice search. It is what it is. Not Nothing too out of the ordinary there. But the other one is send, which is file hosting. I suppose it's supposed to be uh, a competitor to you send it or something like that. But it just seems very strange that Mozilla are taking on this market when there's so many competitors out there. Most of the competitors are not that good and they have like re massive restrictions or they have like a lot of sketchy ad stuff. So I think it's it's maybe not that important for them to do, but I think it's a nice, convenient way to allow people to do transfers of fairly big files of like one gig. But And it also the thing that makes it the most interesting is that it's a one download or one day so that they it's not like you can like host your actual files there. It's just a transfer system. Oh, I mean, there is some hosting. There's intermediate hosting. And, you know, I mean, if their their focus is going to be on the whole encryption angle of it, 
then it's sort of like a glorified paste bin for large files. But I mean, in ordinary users, who's really going to go for this when they already have their Dropboxes and various other cloud sync services that have a far larger storage? Well, it's mainly for people who just want to transfer one file and don't want to sign up for an account kind of thing. That's what I think it's mostly for. And I think it's a great idea as far as um, a service that's a single file transfer but as far as like, it's not going to be like a competitor to Dropbox or anything like that. It's more like a you send it or we transfer a competitor. But there is a weakness with it. I mean, it, it, it's nice in concept because this is kind of like uh, the Mission Impossible thing. So one of the things they're touting here on the test pilot site is it will store your files for one download or 24 hours. It's kind of like this message will self-destruct kind of thing, yeah. which is nice. But then there is the point that everyone has avoided talking about so far this is hosted in the u.s it's controlled by a u.s organization which answers to the u.s government and all the time that that remains true no it's not secure while it's on an american server this is common knowledge but i it's encrypted don't worry it's encrypted yeah but it's encrypted <laughs> until it's not <laughs> you know i mean they basically come along. They say jump. You say how high. That's basically how American companies work now. If you have your data stored on an American server, it doesn't matter. You know, we're always finding out like a year or two years down the line. It's like, oh, but they came along with a court order and Jesus, didn't we get scared? So we said, well, sure, here's the keys and stop for tea while you're here. I wouldn't. I mean, it's, it's a great concept. Yeah, the throwaway files. Here's a link. Only you have this link. You know, let's download it now. The reality is most of these people are going to be sharing the links over phones that have Google or Apple on them anyway. So the link itself isn't exactly, quote, secure, because every part of this is going for American servers. Like even if you use something like ProtonMail and you go for European servers, your file is hosted on an American server. And to me, that is the critical weakness. It's on AWS, isn't it? The actual file hosting here. That part I'm not 100% on, but I would love to know. Yeah, well, I read an article today that said that's where it is. So Amazon are actually hosting the files and Mozilla are just paying for it. You see, that's what I don't understand here. How are they going to make any money from this? Why are they paying for it? <laughs> yeah, why are they paying? How can there be any... It's going to cost them a lot of money. Yeah. AWS is an expensive place to... Well, anywhere is an expensive place to host files. Even if they've got a really good deal, it's still going to cost them a lot of money. And for what? What... How is it going to make them any money? It's just not, is it? They're, I, th I think they're desperately reaching to try and add value to Firefox itself. But I mean, if it's a web experiment, it's going to work in Chrome as well. So if this is a browser share thing, it's flopped before it started. Um, unless they're going to say, well, they're going to have specific Firefox things, but they can because they're, th they're phasing out Firefox extensions. So everything now is going to be web extension based. So they can't lock it to Firefox. It just seems that money could have gone somewhere better. Like, this is up there with the uh, kind of nice things up there with Firefox OS, not something genuinely useful like voice. Well, before we get to voice, can I just say this? One good thing about it is that it is open source. It's the Mozilla public license. So you can take this and you can implement it on your own server and you can use it to send files to people via your own server to make a nice, easy link for them. and. I, that has got to be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, if you run your own instance, then everything I said about the whole American server things, you could just completely mitigate. Set it up on a European host, just not UK. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, or the Far East or wherever it, it happens to be. And so it, that's the good thing about Mozilla doing this is that they're open about it and you can take the code and do what you want with it. Perhaps that's their intent. They've just said that it's not, they're not having any intention to lock it to Firefox. Yeah, I mean, they, they couldn't even if they wanted to. That's kind of the thing. Yeah. They, they've no ability to do that anymore. But I mean, maybe that's their whole intent out of the whole thing, but maybe they don't want to make money of it. Maybe their actual intent is to free up people to rely on their own means, but at least have the technology to share things in the first place. Maybe that's what it's really about. That'd be great. There's actually some cases where I've tried to upload files to my server and have to remember to go and delete it so that it's not wasting space just because I want to send it to one person. So having an automatic Grim Reaper is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would personally maybe have two downloads of it or two days or something, but because it's open source, that would be presumably a very easy thing to fix. It's just some a variable in a file somewhere. You know where it could be handy, actually, for internal networks? Yeah. I mean, you might have to modify it afterwards so that it was actually shredded, but you could firewall your own instance within an organization, you know, if you're having to use things like LDAP and all the evilness that it is. You could restrict the access to that and then have secure file sharing within the organization with automatic expiry. Now, that would be a good application of it. It's kind of up the enterprise end of stuff, but I could see it working there, definitely. Yeah, because how many enterprise users are pushing their files out of their network to something like Dropbox? Or worse. <laughs> yeah, only to be sucked back down into their own network. Why does it have to leave your network in the first place? Have it all stay within a sandbox environment. Send them the link. Bob's your uncle. Mozilla's your aunt. <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked ourselves into liking this. So what about this voice search thing then? <laughs> I mean, the voice sounds cool. I, I wouldn't use the voice search because that seems a little slower to me. But uh, it's, when they have more services that they work with, that it's going to be much more interesting. But right now, it's like, what, three things that it works with? Well, yeah, and it ties into uh, the com Project Common Voice stuff, presumably, that they have realized that that is the way the market seems to be going with Amazon um, Echo and stuff like that, and Siri and all that. So they are trying desperately to stay relevant. It goes a bit beyond relevance as well. I mean, most of the times when we look at voice, <laughs> look at voice, you, you kind of think about the, the Uber call glass holes part of society, <laughs> you know, like just talk to thing in the corner, turn off my lights when you could just touch the light switch. There is the other side, which I don't think is looked at often enough, the accessibility angle. Yeah. And I think for accessibility, having working usable real-time voice is kind of important. And again, like you said about this Zen project, having it open source, it, it's kind of about time because we got like, even in the Texas speech, that stuff, we know that sucks. So having stuff that's coming along that doesn't suck, that actually would improve the lives of someone, then yeah, I'm kind of for that. Mm -hmm. Like I can look past the, what's the best way of putting it? I mean, there's a bit of consumer whoring to all technologies like this when it comes to the voice stuff, but if it does actually help accessibility, then yeah, I'm, I'm in support of it. That's a good point. There's, there was actually a, on the uh, R Linux subreddit, there was a question about someone who was wanting to do voice dictation and stuff like that. And because they had an injury on their, their hands. And this was like, I didn't even think about it until you just said that, but that was one of the things that could help that person. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the industry has been locked down there, basically, in the Windows world. And I forget the name of the suite. I think it's Dragon something. Dragon Dictation Nuance. Yeah, like, there's this very, very famous suite, and it's been used as the industry standard for years now. And then you come over to the Linux side. I mean, you've got very, very poor dictation software available. Yeah. And then on the other side of it, when it comes to text-to-speech, which is another part of accessibility in itself, you get awful voices, you get these... You get Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> what a beans, eh? There's actually a good solution for that kind of thing over like you can use Dragon on Linux through Android. There's a if there's an uh, a keyboard called Swipe that has Dragon dictation built into it and if you connect uh, KDE connect to your Android phone you can use the dictation like a a voice dictation through Android. Are you sure you're not failing? <laughs> <laughs> No, because that's I can't imagine that's open source, is it? Oh, it's definitely not open source, no. Definitely not. Yeah, but can you use it through KD Connect? Was it you were talking yeah. about that on Unplugged? Yeah, it was me. You you can do KD Connect does the has an input for a keyboard and because the dictation on the keyboard acts as just an input, it can voice dictation to the keyboard, which then sends it through to KD Connect and allows you to do like full dictation through Dragon on Linux. You did say on Unplugged that KD Connect works with any desktop. Well, That's true, it yes. doesn't work that well with XFCE, but, uh, you know. XFCE doesn't work that well with app indicators. <laughs> you may, maybe that's uh, a better way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I would rather Mozilla be in charge of this stuff. And they've cut their losses with Thunderbird. They will, they, they will never cut their losses with Firefox, but they are accepting they've got a lot of money and they need to try and stay relevant. And I would rather they do stuff like this than anyone else. And I'm glad that Mozilla is still around and, and trying to stay relevant and maybe we'll find another Yahoo to take for a billion dollars and uh, keep going for another few years. But um, let's talk about Krita. I've always said Krita and then People have been talking about this, and I've realized that it's probably Krita, but whatever, the art program that is part of the KDE. Um, is it actually part of KDE? It's got a K in front of it. It must be. It is now. <laughs> it used to not be, but it, it is now. Right. Well, my wife uses it, and she says it's much better than GIMP, so I'll have to take her word for that. They're different things. The GIMP and Krita are for different purposes, whereas Krita is not an image manipulation tool. It's an image drawing tool and image digital painting tool. So it's yeah. more like creation rather than manipulation. You can manipulate stuff in it because she you can. does. That's but, true. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so they have had some tax issues. I don't know if we can be bothered to go into the specifics of it, but it was to do with VAT. They were charging a bit of VAT, claiming back a lot more VAT than they should have been from the Dutch tax authorities. And the long and the short of it is they ended up with a 20,000 euro tax bill, which they managed to get down to 15,000 I think but then their accountant cost them 4,000 so it was about 19,000 in the end which was not very good and they posted a blog post about that and then the community very much came to the rescue not only individual community members who as of now have donated 36,000 nearly as we record this Jesus yeah not bad eh uh, but also private internet access who seem to be sponsoring everyone these days have given them £20,000, which is yeah, roughly €20,000, whatever. So anyway, they are doing A-OK now. And so they can continue paying their Russian developer to develop it and 
hopefully they're not going to miss any future fundraising um, events like they did as a result of this tax thing. So, yeah, as far as Critter's concerned, things went to shit, but everything's come up Millhouse. Yeah, I mean, I think I might have to get myself in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny that this actually has prompted you, hasn't it, to sort things out? Yeah, I mean, I I was getting stuff sorted, like, hold on, we need to do, like, a whole thing now. And now Ike talks about Solace. (laughs) Yeah, skip forward five minutes. Fast forward now. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... I'd been getting the whole company thing sorted slowly and I was going to talk to local enterprise Ireland and, and all this stuff. And I had it in the works to get Solar sorted out. You know, I figured I can still work on my savings for a little bit and blah, 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 blah. And then it came up in the, on the telegram in the morning. Phelan was like, did you, did you get the company stuff sorted out? I was like, no, Phelan, no, you know, this, this thing, that thing, and the other. And by the way, isn't my joystick wonderful for the dangerous, right? <laughs> Basically how the conversation went. And then he posted this thing. It's like, so, you know, Creed is kind of fucked, right? I went, well, <laughs> it was going on about they're a non-profit and then they have this lad. They're in this country. He's out in that country. They're not supposed to make profit. They claim VAT back. And this is like, this is very, very confusing, but they're in a lot of trouble. And holy shit, that tax bill. Right. But back in the wild, <laughs> I think it was back about 20 minutes later on. It's like, I have an appointment with the solicitor. So I'm setting up a company. <laughs> I wasn't even gone 20 minutes. <laughs> But yeah, that got my ass in the gear very quickly. Yeah, because you say you'd been dealing with it. It was on your agenda to deal with it. It was on my agenda. I mean, there was there was no immediate rush at the time. But now it's like, well, if I actually want to get paid, like as in take the money that's coming into Patreon and then put it back into Solus, then that means actually having a legal framework in first in place first, you know, instead of just doing it as and when I get there. So now it's actually getting sorted. I had a meeting with the Slizzard on Friday, actually, which I think was yesterday. I don't know how days work anymore. <laughs> yes, it was yesterday. Yeah, and then that's all getting sorted out. So that's cool. So those guys helped me in that respect. You know, other people fucking up. It's like, hey. I mean, not <laughs> saying they intentionally fucked up or anything. You know, like, it was a fuck up. Well, this happens quite a lot, doesn't it? I, I would imagine that you start a project. It's pretty small. You're doing it in your spare time. And then, then people want to donate to you, so you kind of take a few donations, and then it kind of spirals out of control. And if you don't put that framework in place first, then it can come and bite you on the ass. And and, and Creta, they had that in place. They thought they were doing it all right, and even then it bit them in the ass. Yeah, I mean, that's when I looked at that, it's like, I am not going for a non-profit. <laughs> but there is also the point of, I don't want to scope limit what I'm doing anyway, but... Yeah, it does show that you can be ticking all the boxes as far as you know and still have things go wrong, which is why when I did it, I was like, I'm going to a solicitor to do the whole thing to make sure I'm doing it right from the outset, not just an accountant, but, you know, every step of the way that there was legal advice there because, I mean, it's kind of a twofold thing, isn't it? Like you're protecting yourself and your project, but you're also protecting the community from damages that you or others could inflict. And I think that's kind of the the importance for a company or legal structure around a project is to protect everyone involved. And in this case, it sort of backfired. Yeah, it just goes to show that you can't necessarily take the advice of one so-called expert. It just It's a nightmare, isn't it? They really thought they were doing the right thing and they had taken it on good advice that they were doing the right thing. So how... I suppose that just the bottom line is that the tax man is always going to fuck you if he can. 
Yeah, I mean, you you give him, well, say you give a penny. No, he'll take the penny anyway, you know. But yeah, I mean, I, I one thing I didn't really like about the Creator thing is this, the rhetoric of I'm a lowly dev. What better did I know? Well, I'm, I'm guessing there's quite a few quote lowly devs out there who would still make sure, you know, and I don't know, you know, when you're, when you're dealing in waters, you don't understand what do you do? Do you, do you take the boat across yourself or do you ask a seasoned sailor? Well, they did ask. That's the thing that they were surprised for. Originally in the beginning, but I mean, a while had gone on since then, hadn't it? You know, the, the circumstances changed from what was originally set up for. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, like when they started out, they wasn't selling things when they started out. So whatever advice they was initially given probably would have been legitimate at the time. Once you move the goalposts, you need to reevaluate. And they did, but didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it sucks. And the main thing is, you know, they've learned a lesson from it. You know, everyone and everything is infallible except governments. <laughs> <laughs> and the communities helped them out. So it's, it sucks, but open source still came out on top in the end. Yeah. And the tax man, you know, got the middle finger in a way. <laughs> Well, he still got his money. He still yeah. got his money, but there was a deal sorted out. An open source came together and said, hey, not around here, mate. <laughs> you know? and, and they get the money one time and they're going to continue getting it because people are realizing that they might need to do something themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's going to wake up off of projects as well. You know, it, it's kind of uh, when do you incorporate? That's what a lot of projects should be thinking now. You know, at what point do you incorporate a project? And it should be basically one, could I get sued? Because you don't want to be personally sued. You want the company to be sued. Two, are you actually making any money? I'm not talking about like the 10, 20 quids coming in. I'm talking about if there is like a, what you might classify as a revenue stream. You know, at that point, you need a company wrapped up around it before you start dipping your own fingers into it, you know. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about Flash and the death of it. And I could talk about how Adobe's website or their blog, not only have they got some insecure elements like images, so the certificate doesn't work properly. And I could talk about how they didn't specify a background color. So on my funky Firefox profile, it looks gray. Something I made Josh fix on your site, Ike. Yep. <laughs> Lazy web design, not specifying white for the background. Anyway, let's talk about the death of flash. So they have said that at the end of 2020, they are going to kill Flash, which for some people is about five years too late. For others, it's 10 years too late. And then other people like me think that this is the responsible way to do it because you can't just kill it overnight. You don't want to do a Google and just pull the plug with a couple of weeks notice or a couple of months notice. This is giving pl plenty of time for people to sort it out, plenty of notice. And it, it was time that it died and I think you've got to give it a couple of years for people to, um, well, almost two and a half years for people to, uh, or no, three and a half years to sort it out and migrate away from Flash. That's a lot of porn websites that need to upgrade. Really? <laughs> My understanding is they've been using HTML5 for a long time. I don't know, Joe. I don't use porn websites. <laughs> well, neither, neither do I. I have an <laughs> academic interest in this. So, you know. Yeah. Michael, have you research. got any experience? You're going to have to do research, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that's a good idea, but I agree that they're, what they're doing is, is good. But I think what people were saying, like, it's too late or whatever is just referring to that they should have done this earlier. They still should have done the year transition to get rid of it or the couple years transition, but that they should have started five years ago. Mm, I'm not so sure because HTML5, as much as it's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. We got HTML5 and CSS3. Yeah, that's all great once everyone fully supports it. And it took that long for these, the, the open standards they even talk about on their own blog. It took that long for them to actually mature. Obviously, I want to see Flash die. Like it kind of has to die, but we had to be at a point, you know, it was like years ago when which version of Java could you use? Which version of Java was going to be available for everyone? And it turned out because of Microsoft, it was Java 1.0, basically all you could target. And they've, they've kind of had the same problem. It's like while it needs to die, the vast majority of people aren't on supported platforms that you could even do that. But at least they're not doing, again, a Microsoft, where it was like, yeah, by the way, Silverlight's dead. Oh, is it? Yeah, about a year. <laughs> it's just <laughs> gone. We're not supporting it anymore. Oh, right, my bank uses that. Um, <laughs> I log in with a secure form. So, I know, I think they're, I'm not a fan of Flash, but I think they're doing it the right way. Like, the industry had to get there. That's true. And also you could go back to the, like, just a, like three years ago, Netflix didn't even exist on Linux. Right. <laughs> what about open source in Flash then? Um, I think it's silly that if you're talking about the petition, it's silly that, that they're just saying, Hey, we should, you should, you should open source the Flash st- stand base. So all these things that currently exist aren't going to be abandoned. Well, they shouldn't be abandoned. They should be ported. Michael, are you telling me that change.org petitions? don't actually change things? Well, if you're trying to get potato salad turned into like, you know, um, chicken salad, maybe that might work. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from the fact that Adobe are not going to do it, it, it <laughs> is it a good idea? If if they could be convinced, would it be a good idea to open source a spec and make it live on? No, because it, sh- it shouldn't live on because it's, one, it's, a, it's a, vulner- a vulnerable piece of crap. But if it was open source, then people could fix it. Ah. Exactly. What if the the code base is so so ancient and legacy that it's not even worth fixing? Hey, you leave Linux alone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's kind of silly because there's there's certain parts of Flash that's actually good, but most of that is being removed. Like HTML5 is replacing the reliance on streaming for Flash, and most almost everywhere now. So. Like it's, it's become almost irrelevant anyway. Except for lots and lots and lots of games that exist. And there was written an action script and only for flash back in like macromedia days. And yeah, but I bet you that at some point, even if it's not an open source version of, of flash, that people will end up having an open source implementation of it just for the retro gaming aspect. Cause at some point, because flash is going to be properly dead, you won't be able to play those games natively anymore. And at that point, people want to emulate it. People want to play the old things that they couldn't play anymore. And there's lots of the old things like on Newsground. They want them right. old games. And they, will, they won't they will die. They will not die. But there could be another option instead of just doing that. They could do it where, let's say someone made an Electron app that bundled a Flash version that had no internet access. Like there's no internet access whatsoever. It's just Flash is bundled to this particular thing, and the the games are. It's like a you know like kind of like DOSBox or something like that. Where yeah, just totally firewalled off. Yeah, it's specifically for this usage. Could use Flatpak <laughs> <laughs> or Snap. Yeah, Snap. Oh, come on, Snap. But I can't help but wonder to what extent 
the W3C adopting the DRM standard for HTML has influenced this decision by Adobe to kill it. Were they just waiting for that? Was that the final death knell for this? I mean, really, it was the only thing that they had to convince people to use Flash at the time. Well, yeah, the the only argument really was DRM, and now DRM is a web standard, so there's literally nothing left for Flash to do apart from games, which no one really gives a shit about. <clears throat> and and some of the games are being ported to HTML5 anyway, so like all of Facebook games are being ported over. Facebook doesn't count. Well, they're the same kind of silly Flash worthless games. In no argument ever has anyone defended a point but Facebook. No. Well, Facebook uses ButterFS. No. <laughs> they just no. Candy, candy Crush? Nope, that's it. No. Oh, you're not allowed to say candy <laughs> because it's potentially trademarked. Does anyone remember that fiasco? I do remember that now after you said it, but yeah. Yeah, I can't even remember that. I'm not even going to mention the company's name. <laughs> That's how scared I am. But they actually tried to trademark the word candy. The Candy what? Crush guys. They tried to trademark it. And everyone was like, uh, fuck off. Yeah. You're not doing that. And then they had to back down from it. There was a company that was like Candy King or something. There was like, they were trying to make a, another game that was like not even remotely similar, but they had the word candy in it. <laughs> Is it King Soft? We don't, don't know the know. name and we're not going to mention them because they got okay. lots of lies. It's definitely not that one, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let's quickly move on then. Uh, let's talk about Debian and their reproducible builds. So the long and the short of it, well, I suppose what are reproducible builds? We should explain that. Um, if you've got source code that is open source, how do you know that that source code was exclusively used to build the binaries that you have got in your distribution? And how do you know that there wasn't some nefarious code put in there as well? Well, by being able to reproduce the build. So taking the source code and building it itself to make an exact duplicate of that binary that's got the same hash as it, which is surprisingly difficult. When I first got into open source, I thought it would be straightforward, but then I learned about different compiler versions and different flags and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so Debian has been slowly but surely working on this. And now the AMD64 repo is 94% reproducible, which is pretty damn impressive. So, Ike, of the Solus repo, how much of that is reproducible? We don't actually have a count on it. We haven't done the diff stuff, but Solus has been reproducible builds for a long time. Because it's not that common. It's not that common, no, but I mean, there, there's definitely importance to it. Like you say, if you've got a build on your system and you're using it, say something like OpenSSL, right, which, you know, you, you kind of want to be secure, and you're looking at the source code, you say, well, how do I know this is exactly the same one? You build it again, like you say, make sure they're absolutely hash identical. Problem is, you do get things, like I remember Nano, I think 2.8.3 or 2.8.4 was released. One of the changes is they stopped embedding timestamps into the files, and that's the most common problem of reproducible builds. They embed the timestamps all over the place, and that's what completely fucks them. Oh, what the timestamps that have when it was built? Yeah, so you'll have like underscore underscore, and then you'll have a macro, which de defines the timestamp. Well, that means that it's literally impossible to be reproducible then. When it has a timestamp in, it's impossible to do that. So, one of the things that happened in GCC, which was backed by Debian, I believe, is uh, it's an environmental variable where it sets the source date epoch. 
any of those timestamp things that are used either in macros or internally in GCC will be overridden with the Unix timestamp passed in the environment. So what Debian would do is like they'd look at the change log, the, the last time the change log assigned the Unix timestamp from then and then build it. So they would both build with the same source timestamp and then that's how you get them both to match. Um, there's a, there's a lot of little tricks like that. Um, .a files haven't embedded things, but yeah, that's basically the gist of it. Anything that is controlled or influenced at build time, such as embedding the host name or the kernel name inside the binaries at build time, which Firefox is notorious for doing that. It'll embed all of the compiler flags and the environment inside the final binary. But hang on, right? Something that occurs to me, when we were first talking about snaps to you, Ike, I think this was back in the um, Linux Lodice days when you were just a guest rather than a <laughs> co-host. You said basically something along the lines of like, if you're using a distro, then you need to trust the people running it. Mm. Otherwise, why the fuck are you using it? And the thing is that if you've got proper signatures and um, hashes and stuff in place, then you should be able to trust the distro that you're using and therefore you don't need reproducible builds. Assuming everything is coming across SSL, like Solus is SSL only on the package repos, you're only getting it from our sources. But lots of distros, they have hundreds upon hundreds of mirrors, you know. So you couldn't exactly verify that source and then, you know, they might not be GPG signed or they could be re-GPG signed. You know, there there's lots of scope for that. It could be a deliberately man-in-the-middle mirror that you're getting only over HTTP. So for cases like that, it would really matter knowing that it is actually the thing that it says it is on the tin. Because, I mean, the, the repo index itself is basically, here's the files I have, and these are the hashes of those files. And then you're in a chicken-and-egg situation. Well, that index, how do I sign that index? Well, then if anyone has a mirror, that they could replace that index. So mirroring definitely makes it a problem. And Debian... You know, it's got a massive infrastructure spread across the world. So if you could say, well, these are from the official Debian archive, these are the sources, and when I build, I get exactly the same thing. You know, haven't got three-letter acronym organizations in the middle of it. See how I didn't name them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we all know who you're talking about. All right, well, um, let's end the news with potentially good news i think this is something that failure must have put in the dock because it's to do with kde mycroft plasmoid version 2.0 something that um was demoed at academy by the looks of things i don't really have much interest in mycroft and i don't have a huge interest in plasma it's kind of i'm watching it but it's not something i'm using michael you are a plasma user does this excite you at all um, as far as the Mycroft functionality, not there's two certain things in that that I don't care, like being able to like drag and drop an image and get information about it, like tags and stuff. Like that's kind of cool, but I don't really care. But the ability to use a plasmoid to interact with your plasma desktop sounds awesome. So you can it, it's looks like what they're doing is building like direct integration so that you can manipulate pretty much any part of plasma through this plasmoid via Mycroft. For the uninitiated, what is a plasmoid? Is it essentially a desktop widget? Yes and no. Well, okay, the, w the way widgets work in Plasma is everything is a widget, including the Plasma panels. So the plasmoid is just something that sits inside of a panel, whereas a widget is pretty much the entire system. So each p your entire, like the whole Plasma ecosystem is built inside, like widgets, home widgets, and widgets, and continuing. 
So I, I, and the best way you say it is like, it's, it's like an applet, uh, like on other, other DEs have applets that are specific to this purpose. And it's more like that. So it's a little bit like Cortana on Windows 10 then that just won't go away and keeps nagging you <laughs> down on the left-hand side of the panel. Well, other than the won't go away part, yes. I kind of want to try it because this is so open to abuse in the best possible way. If you look like right down the bottom of the blog, it's talking about change workspace wallpapers. So yeah. it uses Alton Splash to get the images and set them as a wallpaper because, and I quote, this is a newly added skill that allows a user to change the workspace wallpapers from categories such as nature, abstract, airplane, space. Can you imagine the awkwardness of that office meeting when somebody <laughs> says the wrong thing and the wallpaper just changes in the presentation? I want to see that happen. I want to see that happen. There's a lot of cool things that it seems to be able to do and that they're working on adding extras. That would be one of them for sure. Um, to be able to easily change your plasma wallpaper would um, sadly be an improvement to the current state of plasma wallpapers. All I do is work out how to set it as black and then move on. <laughs> no, that would be too modern or a UI, that would. You know, just completely minimal, just a black desktop. No, well, That's what I have on all my machines, including my phone. Well, that is built into plasma. You're welcome. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. So Entroware are a dedicated Linux computer seller from the UK, and they sell computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1604 and 1704. And this is a company that actually cares about Linux. They make sure that the whole experience is going to work properly. And although, okay, they officially support Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate, I've thrown other distros on their machines and they've worked perfectly. So you're not going to get support from them, but if it works with Ubuntu, the chances are it's going to work with Arch or Fedora or whatever. And they've got a whole range of machines. They've got a server and a couple of desktops, but most interesting to me is their laptops because they've got everything from kind of low-end stuff that's just for email and web browsing, basic stuff, all the way through to real powerhouses with dedicated graphics the latest NVIDIA chips that are ideal for graphic design and 3D art and uh, video editing and machine learning, that kind of thing. And more or less everything is configurable. So you can change RAM and storage and CPUs on most of their machines. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. So if you do decide to buy one of their great machines, then do mention us at checkout. If you mention Late Night Linux, then they'll know we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. On to a bit of admin then, and thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. We don't name names, but you know who you are. Um, if you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And something occurred to me, most projects and, and whatever you want to call it who are on Patreon offer perks and rewards and that kind of thing. And we don't do that because... The podcast is free. I don't really see what we could offer, but if you're listening to this and you've thought about supporting us and maybe there's something that's stopping you doing that, then do let us know. Show at latenightlinux.com is the email address because I'm genuinely interested in that. The thing is, I'm not begging people to support us. The thing is that the show is free. That That is a founding principle of it because not everyone can afford to support us. But that said, if everyone who downloaded this supported us, even minimally, then we could basically do this full time. 
And so it's very interesting to me to learn what it would take for people to support us who aren't. So if there's a big blocker there, then do let us know. And it maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't, but who knows? It'd be interesting to uh, hear about that. So yeah, if you want to get in contact anyway, latenightlinux.com slash contact. There's all sorts of ways there, including the Telegram group, which is latenightlinux.com slash Telegram. So yeah, do get in contact with us. One of the perks could be to to build a fund to stop us from doing a polls calendar. <laughs> like it's a fret. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it if you don't pay us. That's a idea. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do pay it, I'll do it. <laughs> nice. Now, realistically, Jesse's going to do it if they pay. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll be the paperweight that gets made at the end, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I can say it because he's not here, but oh, he's so dreamy. <laughs> Certainly, according to my friend. <clears throat> now, let's not go there. So, right, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Linux as a Windows or Mac replacement. So I had to set up Linux for someone recently. He has been using mostly Windows XP and then Windows 7 or Vista or something. And I am denied and thought, mm, I think probably because I use it and I can make it like it, let's use Ubuntu 16.04 LTS. That's going to be essentially the most like what he's used to. And that's probably going to be the the kind of least friction for him. And if you were setting up for a Mac user as if they were switched to Linux, but let's just pretend they were, <laughs> then I suppose Elementary maybe or Ubuntu Mate with the um, OS 10 or Mac OS theme. So it, this is kind of a two-parter, but the, the first question is, what would you set someone up with if they are... Uh, you know, so what two distros if they're a Windows user or a Mac user? So what distro or desktop environment would you set them up with? Now, Ike, you'll have to go second because I know what you're going to say, obviously. <laughs> but Michael, I think I know what you're going to say. But um, what what would you set them up with? I don't know because everything has changed so much right now that we're in a kind of a limbo, purgatory state where some things are maybe so different that in the next months like you know just coming months of like six months even we're going to say like for example if you give them 1604 then they get used to it and then two years later or not two years later but like two years difference of the of the system and then you have like just five six months after that you go you give them something completely different and now they have this huge interface switch that they're not going to be familiar with and just going to be it's the same situation all over again. Well, that's why I gave him Zubuntu. That's not going to change ever. <laughs> Zubuntu, okay. Ubuntu, that's going to change, right? So yeah, I thought you said Ubuntu. Maybe I didn't hear it right. So okay. Ah, okay, no, I said Zubuntu, which is what I use. Okay, so yeah, Zubuntu would probably be a good option, especially since it's it's a rate of updating is like once every two and a half years. <laughs> yeah, or Ubuntu Mate, that would be an equally good one. I mean, his computer that I was putting on wasn't that powerful so i think xfce is a little bit lighter there's not much in it these days but i think just that tiny bit so and also i use it i can support it over the phone really easily whereas mate is something that i don't use all that often um what about for a mac user would you recommend elementary then not really mainly because elementary is so limited and while that might be fine for people who are switching over from mac to you know to linux if they were to do that 
they would probably expect to be limited options. But it's also missing a lot of just like core fundamental features that I would kind of expect thing to exist. Yeah, but this isn't for you. This is for a, a user who is switching. I mean, no, not not necessarily for me, but I'm saying I expect people from Mac users to use because I, I know a lot of Mac users who swear by Mac. And if they, for some reason they were annoyed by Mac at some point and wanted to switch, they would expect certain features that elementary doesn't have. What, like Final Cut Pro and Photoshop and stuff? <laughs> not applications themselves, but like, for example, one of the things that bothered me the most about elementary is that when I know these people, they were using, um, they were moving their applications around and they always would have this one application that would be hovering over everything. And I forgot what it was. It was like some kind of timer or something. And when I went to try elementary, they have no ability to, well, at least they may do now. I haven't tried in a while, but they didn't have the ability to like always put an application on top of other applications. And to me, that seems like a fundamental feature that every desktop environment that I've used has. Even like even Mac, uh, Mac OS has that. And I've seen a lot of people do that. So there's, and there's probably more examples I could give, but that one is just like, that just jumped right out of me. Okay, fair enough. So right onto you, Ike, then. So for a Mac user, Solus, and no, for no, a Windows no, user, no, no, Solus. No, 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 you're making assumptions. Did you just assume my opinion? <laughs> yes, I made an ass out of you and Mption. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> so for a Mac user, I would, I would give them Arch Linux with IE3, and I would charge them twice as much I was, would have done for the Mac, and just tell them it's ultra-minimalist. <laughs> And they'll fucking buy it. But realistically, I think we need to stop trying to replace Windows and Mac. This is something that's gradually started to annoy me. Because it's like, yeah, we, we must replace Windows. I mean, at a time, Windows dominance in the market was Ubuntu's bug number one. We must replace Windows. I mean, I'm more interested in, and it's such a cliche word, but augmenting the experience that people have. So if you can put an operating system that fits into a home and doesn't try to take over that home, anything that does that is okay in my book. You know, if they've got Windows, let it work with the Windows stuff. Let them talk to each other. If they've got Mac, equally allow that to happen. Hell, have stuff like Synergy so they can actually use both of the systems with one set of devices. That's more important to me than something that says, we are an open replacement for blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, we are competing with Windows. We want to replace Windows by such and such a year. Let's just actually have all systems work together that little bit better and care more about the data and the experience as opposed to who has the biggest dick or, in this case, brand, which is basically what it boils down to. That That's my take on it. But if it happens to be sold us, I don't mind. Well, that's where I was going with this, that... Is it the best thing to do to try and mimic what they're used to? Or do you give them something that is new and better, essentially? And whether that is GNOME Shell, whether that is, well, was Unity, um, or, or whether that's KDE Plasma or whatever, is that a better way to go? And I'm, I feel really conflicted on that because maybe they're going to start using it and go, wow, I can't believe that I've never thought that there could be a new better way of using my computer than windows or mac but then most people are quite conservative and they don't like change and the way 
Windows certainly has worked, has been user tested, and that desktop metaphor and everything. I mean, GNOME doesn't have a fucking desktop for Christ's well, sake. I mean, that's not entirely fair because Windows did rip out and piss on their desktop metaphor several times now. And they went back to it though. Eventually went yeah. back to it because of pressure, and that's effectively bowing to the shareholder. Well, was that pressure or was that it because. Was definitely pressure and kickback. But was that pressure because it's a, a very usable metaphor a desktop metaphor no it's not that it's usable i would say it's because that they just people were so used to it and they never they didn't change it for 20 years yeah but then they changed it to something shit like for a tablet well yes. they, it was around that time when mobile computing had was starting to take off mm. and they realized shit we have to jump on this bandwagon they did a terrible job of it had they switched to something that wasn't insane maybe it might have been okay well yeah yeah that's possible I mean, it's more likely that that the issue is that they tried to do this this tablet instead of having a, a computer operating system that like transitions depending on what it's being used on. They just made everything a tablet, and that's definitely a horrible option. So maybe the backlash wouldn't mean as bad. People don't like having stuff forced on them, and that was the problem when you had like Windows Eight. It's like, well, you know, this is the world we live in now. Everything is a tablet. And then you have Windows 10 now that will intelligently decide whether it's going to be a tablet UI because it basically falls back to Windows 8 mode when it has no keyboard and mouse. Or it's going to act like a proper desktop. And people are like, oh, I have a proper desktop now with Windows 10. And there is the fact that they're rolling as well, but perhaps we'll skip past that. People don't like having stuff forced on them. And I think if any distro or project or whatever is going to be successful, it shouldn't start from the angle of forcing itself upon the users. You know, we must educate the unwashed masses as to why they shouldn't be using Windows. Start off by giving them a viable alternative. If they decide to switch to it full-time, that's great. But, you know, everybody must only use this. At that point, are you not also compromising the freedoms of that person, the ones that you claim to care so deeply about, by telling them they must only use your free and open source system, as opposed to the proprietary system you they're already using? If you're limiting their choices only to doing, quote, the right thing and using the, quote, freedom, then you've actually taken away their freedom to make bad decisions and to fuck up and forcing your ideology on them. And I think that is a very common shortcoming in the free and open source world and one that I vehemently disagree with. So giving them the alternative that they can use, that can integrate with what they already have and effectively accelerate their productivity in life as opposed to this is the only path you will take. How about you've got a number of paths you can go down and we'll try and get you down there as quick and comfortably as we can. And I think that's the way that people really should approach it instead of trying to be so disruptive and take over people's lives by supplanting the technology and the methods they already have. Not that I've had lots of thoughts about this. (laughs) Okay, right, right. Well, that's all well and good. But someone comes to you, you're the computer expert. I'm sick of Windows. I've heard about this Linux thing. What are you going to put on their laptop for them? What, what are you actually going to, you know, they're a Windows user. What are you going to put on? And don't, not, oh, I'm going to give them the choice. They, they're putting it in your hands. What are you going to recommend? What distro, what desktop environment? Always depends on their use case. And a lot would also depend on the system itself, what the system's capabilities was. So I might look at a system and say, well, you know, 
I don't think this would be ideal for Buddy or Lom. And that's going to happen. At that point, I'd be saying, oh, okay, use Mate. If they're a more conservative person as well who wants that traditional desktop metaphor, I'm going to put Mate out there. I'm not going to put Buddy out there because they want that consistency over time. They want, you know, like to have that bottom panel and they want to be able to use the, the Windows key. They want to be able to do those things. So it depends a lot on the person themselves. If it's someone who's more point click you know they've got a typical four gig ram intel graphics then there's a lot of things that you can give them straight off the bat the the things that you should look out for is are they going to be secure over the time are they going to continually get updates and is it within the parameters of their skill set it's not ideal if someone has to come back to you in six months time it's like well you know you put this version on such and such distro on now i've got to reinstall it it, that's kind of hard to do. Right, so Ubuntu Mate 6.04. Okay, so Michael, <laughs> what would you put on there? Well, in this, it's the same situation. of it's, It depends, but I that's a cop-out response, so I know, I know that. But in the sense of, um, like, depending on if they have good hardware, I would just give them preferably a video to show them, like, while well, the interfaces are work or how they work like and what they look like. If that's not an option, I would at least give them a photo. And I've done that on multiple cases where people would they would say, uh, I had multiple examples where one, they didn't want the Windows interface whatsoever and they hated it. They hated Windows. I just want to get away from it completely. So I gave them options that weren't Windows, Windows like. Then there's other options where I gave them all these other options and then they saw, uh, Kubuntu or Cinnamon with a mint or whatever. And they were like, well, I like that because it's, it's just familiar. So it depends on the person. It depends on the hardware, but it also depends on the, the amount of, effort you're willing to put into it as well because if you're you when you switch someone to linux you become the the tech support for that person so you you not even to the point where like they expect you to do it for free because linux is free and you know it's, it just becomes like i don't know an extra job even so this is you not copping out this is me not <laughs> copping out because um reasons name a fucking distro man come on Okay, I would say anything based on Ubuntu. I would want, at first, I would, I definitely do mean that the, I, I completely feel that the interface that they are familiar with is the best one to do if that's what they want or something that is relatively like to like the idea design they like. But I would still put it on Ubuntu as the base because it's the easiest and the most reliable for someone who just comes to Linux. I forgot to ask you at the top of the show. Yeah, I know you use KDE, but what do you use as base? I use both KDE Neon and Intergas. All right. Okay. If I knew the person that I was putting, say like someone came to me that I knew personally and I was putting the system on the laptop, I would still put Solus on it. Don't get me wrong there. Because then I'm able to personally administer the updates that they get and I can make sure if anything ever does go wrong with that system, I can make sure it's perfect. And my friend John, his two kids both run Solus on their laptops. And anytime they've ever had an issue, which was basically once, I sorted it out from them personally. And I like being able to do that. And it's kind of a bit of a pressure in the back of my head. Don't push bad updates out. <laughs> no, because otherwise I'm going to have that problem. So it, it's good on both counts. If it's someone I didn't know personally, then much like Michael, you know, go for the options. What appeals to you most? It's usually going to come down to aesthetics and workflow. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea for people to for the, the projects to create Windows-like environments or Mac-like environments because some people do want that. 
Hmm. And if we offer that, that's good for the options for because it make people more willing to change because at, at the minimum, at least it's familiar to them. That's why I change. That's part of how I managed to change because I, for, for everything that is wrong with Windows, the layout of it and the user experience, it is good as far as I'm concerned. XP and 7, that works mm-hmm. well for me. Having the taskbar or the panel at the bottom, having the menu in the bottom left, the clock in the bottom right, that's how it should work. And that's why I've settled on XFC, especially now the Whisker menu has come along in the last few years. Actually, it's more than that, isn't it? It's a long time since that's it's been, been around, around for anyway. a while, but it's only been it's only been included in XFC for about like a year and a half. Yeah, and having a searchable menu makes it more Windows Seven like, and that to me is how computing should work. And I stress to me because there are some people who say that Unity is how it should work or GNOME Shell. But if you're coming from Windows and you're really happy with that as I was, apart from the security and the speed and performance of it and the slowdown and all of the other shit that we know is terrible about Windows. The one thing that was good about it, I've got in Ubuntu in XFCE. And so I'm happy to just keep using it. Yeah, that's true. And and for me, I switched out of spite and uh, didn't want the interface whatsoever. So when I switched, it was GNOME 2. So that that was... A big difference as far as the interface goes, but it it's it's what I wanted anyway. So it's good that there's multiple options, and it's good that there's an, a, a familiarity and is also a unique str- approach. Because if we had just one interface, if it didn't work for that particular person, then it would no, there'd be no chance they would switch. Right. Well, I suppose we'd better wrap it up. We're getting um, towards about an hour, I think. So yeah, thanks a lot for joining us, Michael, for stepping in and helping us out. It's much appreciated. And I'm sure we'll have you on again at some point. You're not very American for an American, and that's why you fit in well. I try. I try. <laughs> um, so the next show is going to be the weekend of Og Camp. So I have literally no clue still what's going to happen with that. I think I'm going to be involved with the main thing, the main show at Og Camp on the Saturday afternoon. And that might end up forming the core of the episode, or maybe there'll be something completely different. But it's pretty likely that Ike and Phelan won't be involved because they're not coming. (laughs) (laughs) But Jesse is coming, so they'll probably be the two of us. Who knows? That's going to be exciting either way. So it's going to be a month before we do another proper show with the four of us in studio, as it were. So, yeah, I suppose until then, then, I've been Joe. I've been Michael. And I'm still Aiki. See you later.